for some recognition out. Can I do that for just right quick before we get into God's Word? After all, it is not even quarter after 11, so I have some time. I want to acknowledge somebody. Paul Palos, I want to acknowledge you this morning. Paul Palos, right here. I, I owe a lot to that man right there. I owe a lot to him. I really do. My family owes a lot to that man right there. Uh, he has received an award. When did you receive that award? Last Wednesday, received the award for nursing excellence in at Navarro Regional or in Navarro County? At Navarro Regional, and he ranks in the top ten of nurses in the nation. Wow. And what you don't know, well, you may know it because you know him. He's a servant of the Almighty God as well. And he was a tool in the hand of the Lord to help get me to the hospital in such a time as I can still be here preaching. That man right there. Go ahead and give him again. Congratulations. Two, I'd like to uh, draw your attention to uh, Ron Bozier. Ronnie, wave everybody. Just say hi. Hi, Ronnie. How are you doing? Good. Ronnie Bozier, we want to give out great appreciation to him for fixing the ceiling and the light fixture in the fellowship hall. I don't know those of you who attend the Sunday school class down there, down the end of the hallway into the fellowship hall, but that little teeny room just beyond the swinging doors, uh, the double doors there, if you were to look up, you'd have been scared because the ceiling and the light fixture there was literally collapsing. And Ron Bozier, thank you, buddy, for doing the work that you did in repairing that for us. Thank you. And last but not least, Stacy Williams. Say hi to everybody, Stacy. Hey, st- wow, that was enthusiastic. Hey. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed it, but we have new light fixtures around the perimeter of all the buildings here on uh, on the church side of the campus and this side of the parking lot. Uh, they automatically come on at night so no one has to worry about turning them on or they automatically go off in the daytime and i want to thank stacy williams right now publicly for fixing all this and the multitude of other things that he's done around this church can we give him a round of appreciation stacy we appreciate you more than you know who's over in children's church today the averitts are over there it is good to have uh, the pastors at Kassin here in our service this morning. We don't get to have them all the time, but they're up here this morning. I wasn't sure, but the Spirit of the Lord might uh, be speaking through someone else this morning. I want to be honest with you, I was in error. But good morning, everybody, and guess what we're doing? We are done with our series. Uh, during our Christmas, ser- uh, Christmas series, during the Christmas season, and we are back into the revelation of Jesus Christ this morning. Um, if you would open your Bibles, if you have a Bible with which to open, or if this is your Bible and you want to turn to it electronically, or if you have neither, The scripture verse is going to be right up here on the screen. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, 99% of the time I preach out of the NIV version of the Bible. Um, Actually, it's... But that 1% of the time, I throw in the occasional other version or translation. But this morning, there's going to be some New King James in there, but mostly. I don't even know if I threw in a King James or not. I don't. No, I didn't. Okay, there's no King James, just New King James and the NIV. We're going to read our text this morning, and then I'm going to 
address some business that I have to take care of before we move forward. Let's read our text in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and it says, I was given a reed. Now, I know what we think of when we think of a reed. We either are a band instrument geek, and we have a reed on our woodwind instrument, or we think about those things growing out of a pond or a tank. Okay? This particular reed is really important. That reed is really important. And he was given this reed like a measuring, look at the word, rod. Thank you for standing for the reading of the word. I appreciate that. And was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But, verse 2, exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Lord, bless, the, bless this uh, rightly dividing of the word of truth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I stated, before we get started this morning, um, I have a little bit of business to take care of first. Uh, now that we're back from our five-week uh, Christmas series, uh, before we proceed forward uh, with our series on the Revelation, I need to rectify a mistake that I made in our last message. Um, I made a legit oversight, which retrospectively I could just kick myself. I'm going to be honest with you just kick myself for this this oversight uh, that I made in the last installment of this series. But since we're here this morning and we're still in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, I'm going to make it right. Why? Because I can. Back on, uh, back in, I'm sorry, on Sunday, November the 21st of last year. Wow, that's weird to say. Just prior to entering into our Christmas series, I taught on Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. And in that message, if you recall, I discussed the various historic temples uh, that had been built in Jerusalem throughout history in an effort to clarify and make it just plain as, plain as day. What temple exactly is being referred to in Revelation 11 and 1? So I went through these historic temples of the past, and I, I wanted to make sure we understood um, what all this was, was talking about. I said uh, that there had been two temples in Jerusalem prior uh, to the one that is mentioned in Revelation 11 and 1 for a total of three temples. Um, the first temple was, of course, Solomon's temple. It's described... Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8, and it was destroyed back in 583 B.C. Uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. The second temple that I referred to back on Sunday, the November the 21st, the second was, of course, Herod's temple that both Jesus as well as John knew well, and the Lord, in fact, referred to that specific temple in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and verse 20, that temple was destroyed. It's the famous temple that was destroyed in A.D. 70 by Titus. However, I completely spaced out, completely forgot that there was another. There was a third temple, a legitimate temple that had been built in Jerusalem. It had been built after Solomon's temple, but before Herod's. And it was sandwiched, kind of like the white stuff in an Oreo between the two cookie halves. There was this other temple, and I can't believe I forgot this temple because there are some things in the context of describing the reaction of the people of Israel to this temple that I forgot. That's very noteworthy. And, but this temple, the one I spaced off, is Zerubbabel's temple. 
It's described in the third chapter of the book of Ezra. And this temple was destroyed in B.C. 168 by Antiochus Epiphanes. Why am I telling you this? Because, for the record, there have actually been three temples built in Jerusalem prior to the the one referred to in the book of the Revelation chapter 11. Not two, as I attested back in late November. There are three total. There's Solomon's, there's Zerubbabel's, and there's Herod's. In that order, plus the one in the Revelation chapter 11 that has yet to be built. It is a future event. Is this a doctrine-altering mistake? Hardly. But it was a mistake nonetheless, and therefore I had to address it. Because people may listen to this at another time. They may have heard it on the Internet. They may hear this, and I wanted to make it right. On a closely, ever so closely related note, I feel compelled at the, at, at the construction of this message. I felt compelled, and this morning I feel compelled to draw your attention to just one more temple. Unlike the three historic temples that we've just discussed. And unlike the temple mentioned in Revelation chapter 11 that has yet to be built, there is another temple of God. A temple that was or is not built with hands. Like the city that Abraham sought, if I may borrow the phrase, this temple is one whose builder and maker is God. One that is not fixed, it is not located in Jerusalem, and one that has never been destroyed by any army of this world or any usurper from another. I speak of the temple of God uh, in this present dispensation of grace known as His church, comprised of every single true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is another temple. Ephesians chapter 2 states, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. There is another temple. Since Matthew chapter 18, verse 16 says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established, Well, then let's not hang this entire concept on one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do you not know, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Weren't we just told That we have become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit to turn around and have the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians says that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. 
Now, I'm going to tell you right now, that's not a part-time job on his behalf. He resides within you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And how did he get there? The Bible says, whom you have received from God. This is the current state of the temple of God on earth. Hear me. Three, three Jewish temples all centered in Jerusalem, all of which were destroyed, only to be followed by yet another temple, the church of Jesus Christ in this dispensation of grace that will never be destroyed. For it is eternal and will be, instead of destroyed, it will be caught up and called out of this world by the trumpet of God. A temple made of flesh and not of stone, erected in the hearts and lives of men and women all over the world. Galatians chapter 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Woo! Therefore, you are no longer a slave to the law, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This temple, (laughs) this temple is unique in that it is not expressly Jewish. The other three and the one to come absolutely Jewish. Even the real estate it was it, that they were built on is exclusive to the Jews. This temple, it's utterly unique. Why? Because it is not Jewish-centric. Hey, if some Jews want to jump on the bandwagon of Jesus Christ and His redemptive cross and subsequent blood, let them come on. But this temple isn't exclusively Jewish. And it's not centered in Jerusalem. But rather, this temple is Christian. A branch grafted into the vine. Romans 11. Some of the branches have been broken off. And you... Though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Man, this thing may have been Jewish in the beginning, but it's Jesus now. And you and I, as believers, blood-bought believers of Jesus Christ, have been grafted in and our nourishment doesn't come through Judaism or some other religion. It comes from the root of the vine, Jesus Christ. Only. Did you notice that the other three temples, they had to be destroyed before the next temple came in? There wasn't any remodeling done. There wasn't any DIY network to fix up the old temple. No, they were destroyed. They were obliterated. They were eradicated. And then at some point in the future, someone would come along and build a new temple. Well, listen to this. Only after this 
current temple is caught away in the great catching away, will the fourth and the final Jewish temple be made manifest in Jerusalem at some undisclosed point in the future? We don't know. We just know it's going to be built at some point in the first three and a half years of the seven great tribulation years. That's all we know. But we don't know when the great catching away is, so we don't know when the tribulation starts. So we don't know when the new temple is going to be built. We don't know when Ezekiel 38 comes around, eradicates the great bear, Russia, and all of its, all of its Islamic compadres, and Israel goes in and levels the, the, the Dome of the Rock and builds a new temple. We don't know when any of that's going to take place. We have no idea. But when it does, God will then set about the purpose of finally addressing and disposing of the matter of His people, Israel. All right. With all of that said, I feel better about life. With all of that said, mission is accomplished. Incredible crisis is averted. I've got to wipe my brow. Why? Because I'm feeling so much better about life. With all that said, let's get back to our regularly scheduled program, shall we? Our text, again, reads, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. That's really important. As a matter of fact, anybody ever watched a race of any kind, track and field races, drag races, stock car races, horse races? I don't know what other kind of races are out there. If I did, I'd name some, just for effect. That command from what Revelation 10 refers to as the mighty angel who is none other than Jesus Christ Himself, that command to go, listen, and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, that command is the beginning of the race to the end of time with respect to Israel. That command is the beginning of the race to the end of God's dealings with Israel on this earth. That's the one right there. Mark it down. But, the mighty angel goes on to say, exclude the outer court. Do not measure it. Don't, don't mess with that. Why? Because it has been given over to the Gentiles. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. When we look at chapter verse 1, go and measure. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. When we look at that and we attempt to interpret that statement, that command, in the way that we normally and typically use the word measure, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would God want John to measure the circumference 
of the temple. Why would God want the altar to be measured height, depth, width? And two, there's a problem. The worshipers were to be measured as well as the other parts. Worshippers. Well, if you're going to measure worshipers in the way that we typically think of the word measure, we can get away with it with the temple because there's dimensions that are constants. We measure the altar. There are dimensions that are constants. However, if you're going to use that type of measure to measure worshipers, let's take our closest parishioners right here. If I were to walk over here and attempt to measure Caleb, he would be X number of feet, X number of inches. The problem is, is Caleb's dimensions aren't a constant. Because all we have to do is measure his wife, Ingrid. And it's a whole different set of measurements. She's not as tall. So what does God do with that? If we interpret measure in that context, how does one measure a worshiper? Evidently, this type of measurement has to do with measuring spiritual standards rather than physical ones. And when John is told to measure the temple and the altar with its worshipers, he's being told to assess by spiritual standards. He's being told to evaluate the altar and the temple and the worshipers. The temple and its altar and its worshipers are to be evaluated in terms of their conformity to God's spiritual criteria, not ours. You see, what we're going to find out in a minute is that the Jews who have a brand new temple and who have instituted ancient sacrifices in that brand new temple, they, although they have the right heart, they are operating under their own criteria, not God's. But John is being told to measure, evaluate these things according to God's spiritual criteria. And John is to be the one who measures, or here's a word, judges them. John judges them. The responsibility is evidently given because this is something that you don't hear preached at all in the church, but it's the Bible. Listen, this responsibility handed over to John is given apparently because as a joint heir with Christ, John, along with all of the redeemed in the world throughout history, their responsibility is given to participate in the work of judgment. Now, before anybody flips out and goes, I know what you're thinking. But I thought, but I thought the Bible said in Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. That's what I thought the Bible said. Guess what? You're absolutely correct. That's exactly what Matthew 7 and 1 says. Do not judge. And we all always quote it, lest you be judged. Well, then how does this work out that way? How is John measuring the temple, altar, and the worshipers actually the measuring our spiritual attributes according to God's criteria and judging those three aforementioned things. How is that possible in the light of Matthew 7, 1? Well, it's really simple, honestly. 
you have to realize that we're taking this verse out of the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 11. Whereas, when we're told not to judge, lest you be judged, that's coming out of Matthew, chapter 7. There's a huge dispensational difference between the two. Matthew chapter 7, let's be honest, let's be very specific. Matthew chapter 7, the third chapter in Matthew's gospel, the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7 is the third chapter in the quite possibly greatest sermon ever preached. And what is being said in this sermon? Jesus is setting up a brand new framework with which mankind is to work away from or work as a part of in the dispensation of grace. He is changing the the, the landscape of man's history by becoming three dimensions and technicolor. A Jesus in sandal leather comes down and says, this is what you're to do. He's establishing the framework of the dispensation of grace before you are operating exclusively under the laws of Judaism and the law of Moses. Now there is a new dispensation. God is doing a new thing under the dispensation of grace. Do not judge. Well, now we find ourselves being directed by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself to the Apostle John in the Revelation chapter 11 to judge the temple altar and worshipers. You have to understand why that's okay. The dispensation of grace that Jesus was coming from, that was teaching from, that grace dispensation is gone. It no longer even exists. Why? Well, it hasn't existed for somewhere in the neighborhood of three and a half years when the revelation cracks the skies open and extracts the current temple of God from man. Forcefully extracts the church of Jesus Christ from terra firma planting them in the presence of God for now and all eternity. And the Holy Spirit is seen, witnessed around the throne, not on land. The Holy Spirit isn't even here anymore. Grace isn't here anymore. And what we see now is a whole different economy that's reverted back to something akin to Old Testament times. A new temple, a new altar, and blood sacrifices with a priesthood and the rest all functioning under the shadow of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're right. Right now, as children of God, don't judge. And besides, let's be honest. When we judge now, and we do judge, right? We judge folk, don't we? They're not like us. They're of a different denomination. Ooh, they smell bad. Oh, she's a floozy. What an absolute stark raving moron. They're taking pictures of their dinner and putting it on social media. That's mine. Sorry. I'm just going to tell you, I'm working on that. I find God over it all the time. I I have to admit, you're a moron if you're taking pictures of your food and thinking I want to see it. I don't care. Please, please, get a hobby. Will you please? But we judge folk, don't we? We judge them. And we judge them 
under our, our criteria. I don't like that person because of X, Y, and Z. Fill in your favorite poison. John and the rest of the redeemed in Revelation chapter 11, they're judging under God's criteria. Does it stand up to God's criteria? Yes? Thank you, two of you. The rest of you are lost. There's elders here to be saved at the end of the service. further establish the notion, the idea, the concept that the redeemed, John and all the redeemed, are to participate in the work of judgment in this scenario. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? You notice it didn't say trivial people. 1 Corinthians 6 goes on. Do you not know? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Rewind. Pause. Play. We're going to establish this in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Psalm 149, beginning in verse 6. Let the high praises... This is a discussion about the people of God and what they're doing. Listen. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. So whatever they're about to do, they're going to do it in praise. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. So if all that stuff I talked about with respect to the dispensations wasn't enough, the word of God should close that casket. Yes? Just as Israel is the first nation, notice, well, I'll get there in a second. I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm about to get ahead of myself. Just as Israel is the first nation to whom John is to, quote, Prophesy again, end quote. Remember this. Remember this in the end of chapter 10 of Revelation. The Bible said, Then I, John, then I was told, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. That came right at the tail end of chapter 10. Then we jump into chapter 11, and he says, Go, well, that just doesn't say it at all. He says, measure the temple, altar, and worshipers. Measure, meaning evaluate or judge. So just as Israel is the first nation to whom John is to prophesy again, so is Israel the first nation to be judged. 1 Peter chapter 4. For it is time... For judgment to begin with God's household. Remember, he was told, you're going to have to prophesy again. Right about at a time when John was probably thinking, that's been a long haul. I'm about done with this job and it's going to be good to get a little time off, put my feet up. The mighty angel, Jesus Christ, says, you have to prophesy again. Turns right around, and if you'll remember, the division of chapters in from 10 to 11 shouldn't even be there because this is a continuation, not only of the conversation, but of the actions that are taking place. So he's told, you're going to have to prophesy again. Then he's told, 
Go measure. Go evaluate. Go judge. This is always the order. Always in God's Word. God judges His own people first to cleanse and to purify them. What good, what good is God's deliverance from captives and attackers if we are impure when He does away with them? Then we walk away going, God fixed them, now let me go continue to sin. The only reason the people of God in the Old Testament were ever laid siege to was because of their sin. The reasons they were took captive was because of their sin. God doesn't go in and take out Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon just to leave a sinful people behind. They'll keep sinning. No. He judges His people first to bring them in alignment, to humble them and to bring them before Him on bent knee to cry out to Him for deliverance. How often do we find ourselves in places doing something without God only to find what we did because we wanted to do it so bad and it just tanks it just crashes and burns and we are captive to our own bad planning to our own bad motives to our own impure flesh this is how it always happens God judges His own people first to cleanse and purify them. Then He judges His enemies to punish and banish them. Case in point. Now listen, since we're talking about the revelation, case in point, God's people first, then God's enemies next. Listen. The judgment seat of Christ, if you're dispensationally... uh, 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 turned on, you'll know what that is. It's where Christians are purged and prepared for eternal service in the kingdom of God. It's the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ takes place a thousand years before the judgment of the great white throne. This is where unbelievers are separated from God forever and cast into the lake of fire. God always judges His own first, then His enemies. This is what we see unfolding in our text. God judging them, Israel, His first, before He moves on to the rest of the Gentile world. And He does, in fact, move on. The reconstructed temple, this is very important. The reconstructed temple in Jerusalem, the one we're talking about in Revelation 11.1, is based on a covenant made by Israel and a godless dictator, the Antichrist. That temple, that arrangement to construct that temple in Jerusalem is made between Jerusalem and the Antichrist. Because remember, somewhere within the previous three and a half years of this temple's construct, or of this scripture versus uh, a manifestation, a temple has been built because Ezekiel 38 has happened and it, Russia and the uh, uh, um, Islamic states are gone. They're gone. And now there's no more Muslims. Jews are going. Yeah, baby, let's build a temple. The problem is, is there's a structure over there already on that site that three other temples have been built on. So what do they do? Can we rent a bulldozer yesterday, please? They level that building, that, that mosque. They eradicate it. 
and they build their temple there. That temple is arranged for by Israel and the Antichrist and probably a consortium of other nations. They agree to have a temple built and to reinitiate Old Testament sacrifices. The new altar, because remember, what Israel's doing is they're retrogressing to the Old Testament. Right? They're killing animals, blood sacrifice. That's what they're that's why this new temple is there. To go backward to their historic ancestral mode of worship. The new altar in this temple is an insult to the Lamb of God who has already offered one sacrifice for sin forever for everyone if they'll just embrace Him. It's an insult. And the worshipers in the temple, remember, John's measuring not just the temple and the altar, but the worshipers. This is how you measure a worshiper with a reed. The worshipers in the temple, though they're professing honor to God, the Old Testament Jehovah, they have rejected Christ in the process of going backwards in time. Therefore, all of them, this is why they're being measured, all of them come short of the glory of God. And they come up short with respect to God's standard as applied by that measuring rod. Israel is then, therefore, about to enter into the time of her greatest suffering. Remember I told you the starting of a race? Remember? Listen, because they literally offend the Lamb of God, because they fall so far short of God's standard of holiness and righteousness, Israel is about to enter into the time of her greatest suffering. And if you will just go backward in time yourself and play the newsreels of all the suffering that Israel has had throughout her history, then I dare say what's about to happen in the coming three and a half years is something no one wants to participate in. God will use the heavy hand of wicked Gentile nations to chastise His people. But in the process, they will be purified. Remember? God purifies His first. The Gentiles, what does the Bible say? Exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. That's this. For the next 1,260 days, Three and a half years. The, the, the Gentiles will be doing the work of God in purifying His people. For it is time for judgment to, become, to begin with the, God's household. 1,260 days. I had it right. I was scratching my head while trying to preach. That's a bad situation. So the, the Gentile nations will come and chastise His people, but His people at the end will ultimately be purified. It will be... These are biblical references now. This time, this last three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, that section of time will be the, quote, time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30 and 7. It will be... Quote, the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, Daniel chapter 12 and 1. The, quote, 
great tribulation such as we was not since the beginning of the world. Matthew 21st verse of the 24th chapter. The final great judgment on Israel is initiated in Revelation 11 and 13. However, most of the rest of the book of the Revelation is devoted to God's judgment on the Gentiles. Why doesn't it fill in some blanks with respect to what's going to happen to Israel during this time? Since all that time that's left on earth, they're going to be being trodden under the feet of the Gentiles. Why doesn't it go into detail? For the rest of the, I mean, we're only 11 chapters in. There's 22 chapters in this book. And why does God spend the rest of it dealing with the Gentiles? Because the details of Israel's judgment had already been outlined and really not needing to be revisited in both the prophets. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, Zechariah says, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled. The women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And not only did Zechariah talk about it, Mark talked about it. Christ Himself said it in Mark 13. Quote, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judah, excuse me, Judea, flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this does not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress, unequaled from the beginning. When created, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Next week, we're going to begin looking at chapter 11, verse 3 and forward. That is my message today. Please stand.